Welcome to Making a Splash, the arts and culture podcast that celebrates swimming and the sea. I'm your host, Amber Butchart, a dress historian and keen but incredibly unaccomplished sea swimmer. Water has a long association with purification, from baptisms to sacred rivers. In the 18th century, these ideas of health and wellness were extended to the sea, which had a huge impact on the town I live in. We've had sea bathing in Margate for nearly 300 years, spurred on by doctors who advocated the salubrious nature of taking the water. This history is embedded into the foundations of the town, from the Royal Sea Bathing Infirmary, a hospital for the sea cure, which opened in 1791, all the way through to the later town motto, Porta Maris, Portus Salutis, a gate of the sea and a haven of health. Margate's earliest purpose-built seawater bath was built by a carpenter back in 1736 with the purpose of easing chronic conditions. This idea was formalised into the medical profession in 1750 when Dr Richard Russell published a dissertation on the use of seawater in the diseases of the glands. Now this opened with a quote from Euripides. The sea washes away all the evils of mankind. This treatise brought fame to both the doctor and the seaside itself, which quickly became a playground for lives of leisure. The buzzing euphoria of cold water swimming is indeed enjoying a renaissance. It's touted as beneficial for everything from mental health to the menopause. And this is encouraging new generations to experience the sea. But what is the science behind these claims? Today's guest can help to shed light on the truth behind the headlines. Dr Heather Massey is a senior lecturer in the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth, where she spends a lot of her time researching the science of cold water immersion. She's published a number of studies that make up some of the nascent scientific research into the benefits of cold water swimming for both physical and mental health. Heather lives extreme environments as well as studies them. So stay tuned as we discuss the science behind the post-swim high. Swimming the English Channel, Heather has actually done this, competing in the International Ice Swimming World Championships and the theories behind the apparent sociological, psychological and physiological benefits of open water swimming. Now, so many people who swim outdoors report improved mental health uh, and in some cases improved physical health as well. And I know that definitely for me, getting in the sea makes me feel better in a huge variety of ways. And you've co-authored a number of studies into the effects of cold water swimming. One of them in particular in the British Medical Journal is titled Open Water Swimming as a Treatment for Major Depressive Disorder. And another one more recently also looks at elevated mood after outdoor swimming. So could you tell me a bit about each of these studies? Well, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. This this really came about through a programme with uh, Chris Van Tulliken, the doctor that gave up drugs. And it was really about trying to find alternative ways of, of supporting uh, physical and mental uh, health improvements. And so we had a very brave volunteer who uh, is 
forms the case study from the British Medical Journal. And um, we put her into some very cold water repeatedly. Uh, and also um, we got her a, a swimming coach as well so that she could go away, go to her local lake and carry on swimming in a safe way with a coach. And gradually over a period of months, she was able to reduce her medication uh, in collaboration with her GP as well to the point where she wasn't actually needing to take that medication anymore and 18 months after that she remained medication free now I've not not spoken to her in about uh, six months or a year but last time I spoke to her she was well fit and healthy so that's one person who was a case study and that we wrote up for the British Medical Journal and we then went on to look at some sea swimming groups uh, that were providing introductory lessons for people that could swim but wanted to try to extend themselves by going from the pool into the sea. And so we're just looking at their changes in mood, both acutely after their swim in comparison to beforehand, and also uh, over the course of the swim duration. And from that study, we found that there was a big change in mood after each swim, so an acute increase in positive mood and a reduction in negative mood states. And over the course of the swims, we found uh, an overall reduction in negative mood. So yeah, this is only really small steps and so we are looking to uh, carry on this type of research but uh, it's very interesting we had a a group of onlookers on the beach as well and they also reported some changes in their well-being but not mood uh, but not to the same extent as the swimmers so actually that says that actually being by an open water environment may also improve your well-being too. Now, also, the British Medical Journal study mentioned the theory of the post-swim high, which I definitely experience. And everybody I swim with here in Margate experiences that sort of endorphin rush is how I describe it. But can you explain the science behind it? I think you're right by saying it's a theory. And you're, you're probably right also in saying it's an endorphin rush. But it's more than that. It's going to be uh, endorphins, serotonin, uh, the stress hormone response is a adrenaline, noradrenaline, that you get from uh, the sudden immersion or immersion into cold water that results in a cold shock response. So that's that initial gasp reflex that you get uh, when you immerse yourself right at the start of that immersion in cold water. Now, the study also outlines potential physiological and social or lifestyle factors. Can you explain what each of those theories are? Well, yeah, we think that open water swimming, the effects that that you get from open water swimming, they may have some physiological basis. Getting into cold water, the effects that we've mentioned about the cold shock response. Uh, But it may also be a number of other factors that are going on. You're in nature, it's distracting getting into cold water. You have to be very in the moment. It's a big challenge and achievement. So people set themselves goals to achieve and that can be quite motivating in itself. But also people tend to go in groups and they form support groups as well. So there's a number of different physiological theories, psychological and possibly sociological theories about how we might be uh, the the potential for benefit from uh, this environment. I think that's great. And there's certainly, again, from experience, there's such a social aspect to it. And also because it's predominantly women that I swim with, there will be times where suddenly there's a group of you 
immersed in the sea and it's maybe January and once the initial shock wears off you're suddenly talking about you know people are talking about their kids people are talking about this problem with their house or you know there's a sort of healing process going on with the discussions that happen around it as well I find. Uh, Yes that is uh, definitely the case and whether it's a a group of uh, women or a mixed group we certainly find that it's more than just a a physiological experience there's clearly lots of uh, community support occurring in that in that situation. Now the report mentions blue and green therapies and I would love it if you could outline exactly what that means because I think it's something that many more people are really engaging with over the last pandemic year. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what we mean by blue or green therapy, it it refers to the nature, the the natural environments that you are experiencing. So green environments would be uh, land-based environments, so it could be forests, fields, basically uh, areas that are not built up that are natural. So they're green in nature. The blue would be a water-based natural environment. So that's what we mean by the green and the blue. And obviously the therapy comes from from being in that environment and experiencing it as well. So we can have uh, blue and green gyms where people exercise outdoors and hopefully we can start to, in the future, look towards uh, blue and green therapies. But at the moment, the research evidence behind those blue and green therapies needs to be uh, conducted. Now, based on your research, what are some of the physiological and mental benefits of cold water swimming? So at the moment, the the benefits are, are definitely outweighed by the, the level of science for the harm. And we do have to be very aware that going into cold water is an extreme environment. Now, we know from a lot of anecdotal and experiential evidence that uh, people have uh, had reductions in symptoms of, of mental health uh, disorders. There have been periods of time where people have uh, had reductions in migraine symptoms. We're aware of a a study from the Netherlands that found that uh, just by cold showering for 30 seconds a day they actually reduced the uh, sickness uh, absence from work by about 30%. So there's, there's other reported benefits such as a reduction in cold symptoms as well and We've recently conducted a study looking at this and we found that those that swim in cold water compared to pool swimmers have no difference in terms of the number of, of colds they have. Now, it may well be that it's related to the fact that uh, both sets of people were being active, but we do know from the survey that the cold swimmers do far less activity than the pool swimmers do. So actually it's quite interesting to try to pull that apart because uh, we might be having the same number of colds or fewer colds but by doing less. Now I know this is an area that you're personally and professionally involved with. Do you have any plans to expand your cold water research looking to gather even more empirical evidence? We do have a number of avenues of of research interest that we are currently pursuing. So unfortunately, I can't tell you a huge amount about them, uh, primarily because we we, we don't have the funding as yet to sort them out and and start to to progress them. But we certainly want to look down the the, uh, use of cold water for therapeutics in terms of looking at 
reductions in symptoms of depression, anxiety. Um, there's also some research evidence out there looking at uh, a reduction in neural degeneration that may occur as a consequence of immersion in cold water. There's a group in Cambridge there that have looked at that. And that's certainly, there's certainly two av- avenues of, uh, of interest that we are actively looking to pursue. Fantastic. It made the news quite a lot, I think, that Cambridge study, didn't it? Well, as has all of your research. But I certainly remember hearing about that and hearing it on the radio, reading about it on the BBC, about it potentially reducing the risk of dementia. Is that the study? Yes, that's how it was reported. Uh, now, the, the Cambridge group looked at a, a number of swimmers that swam in a, a, a Lido in central London and also a similar group of Tai Chi participants that exercised on the, set, on, the, on the broadwalk of the same Lido. And they found that the swimmers had a, prote- had a greater level of protein RMB3, which uh, reduces the amount of neural degeneration that can occur occur and it's so it may actually slow down the process of dementia occurring it might not necessarily stop it but it might slow that process down but there's still quite a way to go uh, to see whether it's actually what what's causing that is it the is it the immediate effects of going into cold or is it a long duration cold exposure so there's still quite a lot of work to do and we certainly wouldn't recommend it if you have been diagnosed with uh, dementia that you go and uh, put yourself in cold water that, so that there's still a long way to go before we can uh, recommend it as a therapy. Well, speaking of those dangers of getting into cold water, which you mentioned earlier, there are, of course, dangers involved with this. And now how can people spot the signs of hypothermia? There's a number of different dangers of which hypothermia is one of them. So initially, when you get into cold water, we experience something called the cold shock response. And that uh, relates to uh, a big increase in uh, breathing rate and a, an inspiratory gasp so if you uh, if your airway is not above water because you've jumped in or dived in or gone in very quickly or a wave has broken over your face you can aspirate uh, a large amount of water and potentially uh, drown as a consequence you can also uh, become incapacitated by a, a cooling of the muscles so you're unable to coordinate a swimming stroke and then hypothermia uh, takes quite a while to set in so it can take 30 to 40 minutes before Uh, the deep body temperature reaches uh, a temperature of 35 degrees which would be classically what we would call the start of hypothermia. We normally regulate our body temperature at around 37 degrees or 36 and a half so it takes a while for our body temperature to get down to that level. So you've had to you have to be swimming for some time before you'd start to develop the signs and symptoms of hypothermia. But quite uh, frequently, medics will say that you can spot someone that is hypothermic by the umbles. Do they mumble, fumble, stumble and grumble? So by that, uh, we mean, are they mumbling? Are they slurring their speech? Uh, Are they not able to coordinate their uh, their language properly? Are they becoming quite disorientated? Fumbling, have they got claw hands and not able to support themselves to get dressed? Stumbling, are are they able to coordinate? coordinate walking are they unsteady on their feet and grumbling are they generally incoherent and uh, not able to uh, 
well, well, basically very confused. So that's looking at those changes in behaviour that we can get because of uh, becoming hypothermic. So if you do see anyone that's in that condition uh, that has had an obvious change in behaviour from their usual behaviours, then it's always uh, a good idea to get them inside and get them warm. And then if, if they continue to have uh, problems, get an ambulance. Now, we've seen a huge uptick in people getting involved in outdoor swimming over lockdowns, over the pandemic. But it was something that was certainly uh, sort of growing beforehand anyway. So what would your main safety advice be to new cold water swimmers? My main safety advice for people wanting to try cold water swimming would be to find a local group. There is a great deal of knowledge within our local groups, uh, both in terms of the uh, local hazards, but also in terms of what's going to happen to your body. So do a little bit of research about groups that are local to you. Join one or two. There's many different groups and and most are very, very welcoming. And uh, find out about the hazards that uh, mean that it's not safe to swim in certain areas or when it is safe to swim and swim with those people at those times and places. But also learn a bit about what's going to happen to your body when you go into cold water. Know that you're going to experience that cold shock response, but it will pass within within several minutes. I would also urge those that have any underlying medical conditions to strongly consider speaking to their GP before they go into cold water because there are a number of uh, medical conditions that can be exacerbated by going into the cold. So it's always worth having a little bit of an MOT with the GP just to check that you are okay to go into the cold water kind of like you would if you were going to start going to the gym for the first time and you have to fill out that uh, disclaimer to say that uh, you're fit and healthy. It's the same idea there. You know, we had a big explosion in the numbers of people taking part in cold water swimming over the pandemic. And unfortunately, that did result in uh, a big increase in the number of Coast Guard call-outs last year, uh, primarily because people either were, were swimming in areas that they, didn't, they weren't familiar with or they got into trouble because they weren't aware of what was happening to their body. So I think really just we need to just emphasise that, yes, it's a, it's a great thing to do, but just make sure that your uh, research, the the effects it's going to have on your body and where you're going to swim to make sure it's safe to do so. Now, I'm I'm a dress historian and I'm also incredibly interested in the research uh, that you've done into testing life jackets uh, and sort of performance clothing in general. Can you tell me a bit about the life jacket research that you've been involved with? Yeah, so we've been involved with a, a little bit of life jacket research and, and my colleagues uh, here at Portsmouth University have been involved in, in much more research than I have. So the research that we've been involved in has looked at trying to improve the performance of life jackets and save lives when the life jackets are deployed. Now this is in, includes things like including spray hoods so that if waves break over the top of the life jacket, uh, it prevents the water from surrounding the face and obviously if somebody is unconscious they're then going to breathe that water in and can lead to drowning. So there's a a number of different uh, life jacket performance tests that uh, our, our lab have been involved with but the ones I've been involved with have mainly focused on trying to improve the performance of life jackets so that they are retained around the body. 
quite frequently if life jackets are in wave conditions or if there's a, a sharp upward force if you have to jump in to the water you'll find that the life jacket might ride up the body and so actually it renders it pretty useless in supporting your airway above the water so the idea of a life jacket is that it should be retained around the body supporting the airway to be clear of the water so we've been involved in a couple of life jacket trials where we've used a wave tank at the RNLI in Poole. They have a, um, a very, very large wave tank, uh, which they can put life, uh, life rafts in, they can put their lifeboats in and do a lot of their volunteer training with. And we have a, a mannequin which we can dress in various clothes and life jackets and then uh, put our mannequin in the, in the pool while the waves are on. We wouldn't put humans in uh, while we conduct these tests. And basically we look at different life jacket conditions and we looked at retention devices and namely the crotch strap. So we're looking at trying to make uh, retrofitting crotch straps to life jackets to ensure that they are retained around the body. So yeah, life jackets are never going to be a popular thing with anybody. But the idea was to prove to people that actually retaining the life jacket around the body was the most important thing. And I think from the research, it was pretty conclusive that uh, if we put a, a mannequin in three hours of waves, we can force the mannequin's head through the top of the life jacket so that the airway of the mannequin would be permanently submerged in some conditions where there was no retention around the body other than, so no crotch strap. Whereas actually just by fitting one crotch strap, we were able to make sure that the life jacket was retained around the chest and the airway clear of the water. That's so interesting and something I'd actually never considered before because I think, you know, people outside of these the scientific studies that you're doing have a certain awareness of safety testing procedures like crash test dummies, things like that for cars. But I'd never considered it for anything to do with going to sea before or being on the water. So it's just, it's really fascinating. Your relationship with open water is absolutely prolific. You've swum the channel and you've competed in the World Ice Swimming Championships as well. Can you please tell me about each of those? Which was more difficult or which was more enjoyable? How do you draw a line between those two things when you're considering those activities? I'm so keen to hear about it. So yes, I've I've swum for a long period of time. I've you know I, I think I had a bit of a misspent youth uh, in open water. Um, my my dad was a, a dinghy sailor and uh, he kind of insisted that we myself and my brother learnt to swim from quite an early age just in case he decided to capsize our boat while we were uh, while we were out sailing so we were quite lucky from that point of view and I never really lost that love of swimming outdoors and so it really was a bit of a, a natural progression for me to carry on swimming after we'd done you know school swimming lessons and stuff like that so then I went and did a little bit of competition swimming when I was a youngster and then you know the usual teenage things of uh, you know other sports, uh, other people got involved and sort of swimming waned a bit. But then I picked it up uh, after I finished my degree and started back doing more long distance stuff and just really enjoyed uh, doing it. Actually, the sea was fairly empty then because it was quite an unpopular thing to get in cold water. And so I was considered a bit of a weirdo, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I think things have changed by now. But um, yeah, so uh, and then I started to develop, uh, you know, uh, 
learn a little bit about long distance swimming and you know you, your friendship groups start to include people that have then swum the channel and they start to you know do things like um, persuade you to do it and that's basically what happened to me uh, one of my friends decided to book me uh, in for a couple of relay swims to, uh, to swim the English Channel and then uh, without telling me just booked a solo uh, English Channel swim for me and then informed me that I had to pay the pilot to go and do it so uh, yeah I, I think I was uh, motivated by one of my friends uh, to, to or motivated supported um, yeah <laughs> voluntold might be another word uh, to, to swim the English Channel but it's something that I I think I had in the back of my mind, but I think I was, uh, it was pushed forefront by, uh, by some friends to do that. So it was a really challenging uh, thing to do. It's something that obviously it's taken me a long time to, to do. Uh, you know, I'm early 40s now and I've been swimming a long time and, and clearly other swimmers are, are have a much quicker progression. But yeah, being in cold water for long periods of time is very challenging, very tiring, and it, it takes a, a lot of uh, of, tra- of dedicated training to to do something like that. If you're going to spend what I, well, I spent 16 hours swimming from uh, England to France. Some people are far quicker than me, but it's still a long time to be in doing anything for uh, in a single go. So there's a lot of training, a lot of coordination, and a lot of um, uh, maintaining your own enthusiasm to do it so uh, yeah definitely it's a it's a it's a goal but it is all engaging and your life does tend to focus around your swim for quite a while so yeah it was a it's a great experience absolutely remarkable i mean huge congratulations on on doing that what an achievement 16 hours what was going through your head when you reached france well i'd spent three hours three and a bit hours about 2k off the French coast Um, and the tide was taking me sideways so at that point I was just I was ready to get in and 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 uh, just just wanted to to reach land so I'd spent three hours looking at the the coast that was less than 2k away from where I was thinking I'll get there in a minute I'll get there in a minute and it just took a while but I knew that could happen and it's no it's that knowledge that okay if I don't make land in the next hour, I've got another six hours to swim until the tide is back in my favour. Uh, that was a big motivator, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. What was the best part of the... Like, I, just, I can't possibly imagine being in cold water or swimming for 16 hours. Is there a particular part that you remember where you had a certain clarity or something like what was your favorite part of the swim um the the part i had most clarity over was when i was stung by a jellyfish uh it, it wasn't it wasn't a severe sting and it was more like a nettle rash but it certainly brings you back into the moment i think time kind of collapses in so there's quite a lot of the swim that uh, i have no i don't remember all 16 hours i don't think we would any way of any particular day but I think one of my friends uh, swam with me for about half an hour during that three hours where I was very close to the French coast and that was magical because she'd you know she'd given up a day's work to come and be on the same boat on the pilot boat and it felt a great honour for me to uh, swim with her and for her to you know for for her to have given up a day's work to come and swim with me and that that was probably the 
the best part of that swim and then just being able to get onto the boat and just thank everybody for their support you know for spending 16 hours looking at me in cold water seems a bit ridiculous really (laughs) it's fantastic so fantastic and the world ice swimming championships as well tell me about that yeah so i it was really um I, i kind of just got into uh, swimming in colder and colder water uh, through many, many seasons. We we would normally traditionally stop swimming around October, November time when uh, the water started to chill off. And gradually over a couple of years, we just sort of extended the time either side of, of Christmas that we would stay in. So it, it, it crept from October right through to November and December. And then we thought, oh, well, let's just swim through. You know, the coldest time of year in the water, the coldest water temperatures are in February and March. So that's when they're coldest. So those that do the Christmas Day dip, yes, the water is, you know, single figures, but it gets colder from there on in. And then... Um, I just sort of entered a local um, winter swimming event and uh, through that managed to qualify for the World Championships of the International Ice Swimming Association World Championships. Um, Yeah, a little bit bemused how I managed to do that, uh, but it was an absolutely amazing experience, a bit of a a one in a lifetime thing uh, to one, represent your country. I'm not a quick swimmer, so it it seems a little bit, uh, uh, it was embarrassing, but uh, yeah, I'm very happy to take it. I, I represented Britain. Uh, in the ice swimming world world cup so that was amazing and yeah it was it was a great experience going to uh, Berghausen and the German Austrian border which is absolutely picturesque minus 14 air temperature plus two degree water temperature so it's actually warmer in the water than it was in the air so still very cold but yes we were it it was a very well organized event we had five or six event doctors on site uh, paramedics cold water swimming is an extreme sport but ice swimming is the pinnacle of of extreme cold water swimming so it's very important that we had large amounts of medical cover and yeah that they, they'd organised the event really, really well. Um, and it was it was like having a... Well, it was. It was a 25-metre pool that had been specially... Uh, that had special pumps in it to prevent the water from freezing. So the water was continually moving so that it didn't form ice layers on the surface so that the swimmers could swim in the water. And it was great to meet uh, a whole range of new uh, people from all different uh, countries who were doing exactly what you enjoyed doing as well. I wouldn't say I particularly enjoyed the swim um, and I'm still feeling the effects from one of my fingers that went numb during the swim and that was four years ago. So, I, yeah, I think I have a lasting memory of that uh, event. Gosh, oh my gosh. I mean, it really does go to show, you know, does, doesn't it, that this it can be dangerous, the fact that, you're, that this was such a heavily regulated event and you're still feeling some of the effects four years later. That's, it's just incredible. Yeah, I think I've probably developed something called a non-freezing cold injury in uh, the, the sort of very tip of one of my fingers from, uh, from touching the wall to turn because uh, stupidly I use the same hand uh, all of the time to turn which, you know, logic would say that you should have used both to try to reduce the dose of cold on each hand, but you don't necessarily think about these things when uh, it's your first time doing them. No, sure, especially in such extreme environment as well, definitely. Where do you swim most regularly now? 
Well, I uh, live on the south coast of uh, England in a in a town very close to Portsmouth. So I swim on the beaches there. I'm very lucky to live very close to one of the beaches within walking distance. So swim regularly there at, in Gosport and Leon Solent. And what's your preferred body of open water? Would it always be the sea? Oh, no, I enjoy swimming in the sea purely because it's so local, accessible and easy for me to, to swim in. But you know what? I really enjoy swimming in fresh water as well. So in lakes, rivers, uh, streams. Uh, they all have their own unique experiences and it's just a, a pleasure to swim in in any body of water. Who would be your ideal swimming companion? This can be anyone, real or imaginary, dead or alive. Oh, um, I'm glad you gave me some forewarning of this because there's a couple of people from history that I'm really keen, I'd really have loved to swim with. And the first would be Gertrude Erdely, who's the first woman to swim across the channel. And I just, having done so myself, I'd just really like to experience what she experienced. I mean, the notoriety was exceptional and that's not really my, uh, my thing. But, you know, the equipment that she had to use was obviously going to be inferior to what we used. And um, her training, how did she train? It was far more of an unknown thing to do then. And I was very lucky that I had a lot of advice and experience and people could tell me uh, what they'd done and I could sort of find my path. But she had to find her own path and it would have been, it would have been great to just have a swim with her. And then the second person would be Jason Zaganos who, again, another English Channel swimmer, who uh, died, unfortunately, trying to swim the North Channel from Northern Ireland to Scotland. And he was, you know, he, he took part in the Billy Butlin's uh, swim across the English Channel when, when it was actually a race to swim across the Channel. They raced across the Channel. So just, just to have a, a, you know, a swim with both of those people would have been absolutely amazing. Where's your favourite place that you've ever swum? Oh, my favourite place I've ever swum would have to be Wastwater in the Lake District. It's absolutely picturesque. It's very cold. There aren't many people around. Uh, so obviously you need to take somebody with you if you're going to swim uh, in, in, in Wastwater. But it's picturesque and it's crystal clear water and it's very quiet uh, and you're just back in nature. It's absolutely fantastic. And where is top of your list to swim that you haven't yet swum? Oh, <laughs> I've got a long list of things, a long list of places I'd really like to swim. Where is your top three? Top three. Well, I, I, yeah, OK. Uh, I can't go for the top three, but my top one would be some of the lochs in Scotland. So I'd like to do Loch Lomond and um, also Loch Ness. Me too. I'd like to do Loch Ness, definitely. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Heather for being such a brilliant guest. Head to the episode details to find more information on Heather's work and research. If you've enjoyed this, please do rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode. It really helps other people to find us. And you can find out more about future guests at my Instagram page, at Amber Butchart. See you next time on Making a Splash.